The Global Democracy and Justice Lecture Series with Oded Gilad and Dina Freeman. Episode 21. Domesticating the International System. When we try to understand the politics of humanity as a whole and the different relations that occur on different levels, one of the most useful concepts is what scholars refer to as the Great Divide that can be observed between domestic politics happening within states and international relations that happen between different states. While on the domestic level, politics revolve a lot around things like elections and parties and parliaments making laws, in international relations, you find a very different set of tools and concepts like diplomacy, realism, power politics, and war. So in this video, I will explore the key differences between those two sides of the Great Divide which will allow us to much better understand the problems of the international system and what it would mean to take the domestic politics to the global level. The first key difference is how national governments are working differently on the domestic sphere and on the international sphere. On the domestic level, as we know, all governments appoint issue-specific ministries or departments or agencies to deal with the different issues like health, education, environment, and so on, but only within the borders of the state, while all the aspects of these matters that extend beyond the border are defined as international issues, and therefore fall under the vague responsibility of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And the name of that ministry, Foreign Affairs, if you think about it, it reveals something fundamentally problematic about the international system. Because it reflects this perception by which the entire Earth that is beyond our national borders is a foreign land, and that the whole of the rest of humanity that is out there are foreigners. You know, people that are not like me and you. People whom we cannot understand and just cannot trust. And this is actually a dangerous mindset. Because in the real reality, we live together with all those people on the very same small planet that is so precious and fragile. We are all vulnerable to the failures of the global economy, to pandemics and other global threats. And so, a system that defines the larger humanity as foreign and alien to us is just the wrong system on so many levels. And sure, it's very nice that despite it, so many people can understand and feel our strong connection to the entire Earth as our shared home, and to the entire humanity as our larger group. Like that ancient sage who said, I am a human, and therefore nothing human is foreign to me. Yes, but we also need a political system that will reflect that basic unity. Today, we don't have that. Which brings me to the second key difference that has to do with the hot question of identity and citizenship. On the domestic level, you can find among the citizens of any country really a multitude of individuals and groups with a huge variety of opinions, customs, hobbies, preferences, values, and interests, and so on. So they are anything but identical, right? But since legally they are all recognized as citizens of the same country, that is what's written on their identity papers, that means that politically they can do that thing that is at the very heart of the democratic system. They can aggregate their political power by voting on the issues or for the parties that they like together. 
and by public discussion and deliberation, they can change their mind and decide to support other policies or parties. But on the international level, let's say that you are worried by the fact that some big country is doing nothing to reduce its huge carbon emissions. And even though you know that these emissions eventually will harm the same climate in which you and the rest of humanity live in, since you are not citizens of that country, you are not allowed to have a say that counts. You are not allowed to vote there for a party or a politician that you think will do a good job on curbing those emissions. You are included in the ecological sense, but excluded from the political process. Even if you can find like-minded people in other countries who care about the same things that you care about and share the same values, you are not allowed to aggregate your political power with them. The structure of the international system imposes a permanent and impenetrable legal separation between you all and defines you as foreigners to each other. There is us, or we the people, on the domestic level, and there is them, or the others. And the one thing that is common to all countries in that structure is that their own citizens, their us groups, are always outnumbered by the great them group of foreigners that are out there in the world. For example, even though the United States of America has the third largest population in the world, on a global count, they are such a small minority that for every US citizen, there are 23 that are non-US citizens. Even for every Chinese citizen, there are globally six non-Chinese others and nearly the same number is for every Indian citizen. Which means that if our nation, if we are such a minority in the world, then we are, by definition, constantly at a state of possible vulnerability and at a risk and in fear. Because who knows what these foreigners have in mind, right? We are really not looking to fight with anyone, but we have to be ready to defend ourselves, because who else will? And if some are willing to defend us, what do they want in return? And can we really count on them to be there for us when we need it? And that is the third difference. The question of what tools exist to solve conflicts and provide security on each level. On the domestic level, well, if individuals or groups have some dispute that they cannot settle, they are not allowed to use violence or even threaten the use of it, but they are invited to turn to the appropriate court whose rulings are backed up, if needed, by the force of the police. But on the international level, countries do not have a phone number of some world police force that will come to protect them in case that they are attacked. So they pour huge budgets to maintain their armies. And when I say huge, I mean the equivalent of 2 trillion US dollars every year, which is 500 million US dollars every day. Huge. Now, you might have heard people speak about international treaties, like the Geneva Conventions that set the norms for how to wage wars in a less barbaric way. You might have heard about the International Court of Justice, now more than 100 years old, or the much newer International Criminal Court, only 20 years old, that are supposed to help solve conflicts on the basis of international law. But when push comes to shove, I think that the daily price tag of $500 million that countries spend on their armies gives you the best illustration of what's the real worth of these international justice mechanisms. 
They are too weak to be counted on, and their toothlessness is a basic feature of the international system. And notice that, on the domestic level, all the processes of solving conflicts and ensuring security are, in principle, transparent and open to public scrutiny. From the writing of the laws in the parliament, through their adjudication in open courts, and to their legal enforcement by the police. But on the international sphere, the tools for solving conflicts and ensuring security are shrouded in thick fog. Our army forces are a state secret. Our secret agents are in the foreign lands, spying and carrying other secret missions to defend us. And over here, our secret service is looking for foreign spies among us. And all our diplomatic missions and all their dealings are, in principle, secret. In fact, even things like trade treaties and investment treaties are so secretive that even parliamentarians are not allowed to see what's in them. So, following the famous quote of Judge Louis Brandes, who said 90 years ago that sunlight is the best disinfectant and electric light is the most effective policeman, we can say that the domestic is the realm of light, while the international is the kingdom of darkness. Which gets us to the fourth key difference, and the most important one, which is about the available tools in each sphere to prevent the concentration of too much power in the hands of the few. On the domestic level, over the past 200 years, national democracies have developed some really good principles of how to do that, both with regard to the people, the demos, and with regard to the government, the kratos. The power of the government is divided in horizontal and vertical ways. The horizontal division is between the three branches of government, the legislative, the judicial, and the executive, roughly corresponding to the parliament or congress that write laws, the courts that rule according to these laws, and the government ministries or departments who execute these laws and enforce them. The vertical division means that in all three branches, state power is divided between several levels. The central at the top, dealing with national or statewide issues, the regional in the middle, dealing with simpler or more local affairs, and the local or the municipal levels on the foundation level, managing the most local affairs. Now, the underlying assumption of all these divisions was nicely explained by the writers of the Constitution of the USA in the Federalist Papers. They said that each branch of government, at each level, can be expected to be kind of greedy and try to accumulate more power to itself on the expense of all the others. But then it's expected that those other branches or levels will stand guard and thus prevent the concentration of too much power in one place. And when the power of the whole government is kept divided and balanced in this way, it's much easier also for the people to check the power of the government and make sure that it stays the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And, with regard to the people, domestic politics also have effective tools to prevent the concentration of too much power in the hands of individual citizens, or their groups or companies. Laws and regulations can make sure that everyone plays fair, and taxation from the rich to the rest of society can make sure that inequality is kept at a healthy level, balancing the incentive for social mobility with maximizing the options for it. But many people complain, and rightly so, 
that this domestic system is failing and does not prevent the concentration of power in the hands of either governments or the few super-rich individuals and corporations? My answer is that the most important reason for these failures is the fact that these good domestic mechanisms are today restricted only to the national level, while the frameworks for the accumulation of power have expanded to the global level, beyond the reach and the oversight of the national domestic systems. And this is true both for economic power, where the global corporations evade taxation and thus accumulate more and more money and power, and it's true also for state power. Because the top state officials and politicians that are supposed to supervise these massive corporations, they work for a government salary that, compared to the private sector, is ridiculously modest. And so, they often find it very hard to resist the huge and multiple temptations that these corporations can offer them. When prime ministers and presidents collaborate with a big corporation, not only the corporation's power grows, but also the power of these people in the state system. And thus, the domestic system of checks and balances fails to prevent the accumulation of power in the hands of the few. Now, this fundamental problem has two possible solutions. Either to descale the economy and limit it only to the level of the nation-state, or to upscale the domestic system of checks and balances to the global level that the economy and the corporations are already working on. The first option is very hard to justify from a humanistic or cosmopolitan perspective, because if it's okay to trade inside one's country, then why not have such exchange also with the people across the border? What's wrong with them? And if we fear that humans or the environment beyond our borders are harmed by the powerful there, then just as our moral sentiment can cross those borders and care for them there, so could also a shared domestic system for restraining the powerful everywhere. Just as within our state, we don't leave the protection of the weak only for the morality of the strong, but want also regulation, law enforcement and redistribution to be there for the weak, so these domestic measures of preventing the concentration of power can be applied also at the global level. Why not? Furthermore, while it's clear that helping the economy to be as local as possible has many advantages, both ecological and social, the best way to do it, if you think about it, is actually by the globalization of the domestic mechanisms of justice and of politics. Why? Because without such mechanisms, exploiting and harming the people or the environment of other countries is extremely easy and cheap. And this is exactly why the most polluting and exploitative economic activities of production have been outsourced offshore to other countries. But if human rights and the environment were really protected globally, the economic incentive for this outsourcing of harmful activities would diminish significantly. And we would see a great revitalizing and strengthening of the local economy, especially when we remember that once we have global redistribution from the global super-rich to everyone, communities everywhere could really flourish, with the necessary funding to provide their needs. So by globalizing domestic politics, or you can call it domesticating global politics, we are expected to see the global economy not only flourishing and becoming more local, but more equal because of redistribution, more just because of real protections for human rights, 
and more sustainable because of real regulation and taxation of pollution. Sounds good, doesn't it? And this, the management of the economy, is the fifth difference. In domestic political systems, you can find different versions and flavors of mixed economy that combines the market system with the economic checks and balances of the state. These can be regulation, taxation, and redistribution, but can also include some public ownership of land, of natural resources, or companies, to make sure that these will be used to benefit the wider public rather than just a very narrow social class. In each country, the exact ratio of how much market and how much state should be in the economy is the topic of hot arguments between the domestic left and the domestic right. And indeed, in every country, this ratio is dynamic and changes this way and that way through the years. But the heat of those debates often makes it hard for us to notice the simple, great agreement shared by most people on both camps, which is that some mixture of market and state is necessary. That either having just market economy with no state, or just state economy with no market, that these things are really bad. Which is why it's so peculiar that when it comes to the international level, these same people seem to just take for granted the fact that so much of the market system has gone global, while our domestic mechanisms have remained national only. For the global market players, the corporations and the super-rich, this setting is just ideal. The state tools that are supposed to restrain their power are divided between some 200 separate and competing governments, which makes it super easy for them to evade the regulation and paying any taxes. There are multiple other profound differences between domestic politics and international relations, but I will end here with just a final one. And it has to do with the rights and the power of the individual in each of them. On a domestic level, the basic ethos is democracy, where each individual has one vote. The individual person, who is considered the most basic unit of society and of the demos, is supposed to have a portion of power and sovereignty over the government. So the political relationship is not only top-down, of government ruling subjects, but also bottom-up, with citizens ruling their government. But on the international level, individuals have no say. It's a game for governments and governments only. So it's basically top-down. It is time that we revive the vision of a world federation, a domestic political system on the global scale. Then, finally, we will no longer share our planet with foreigners, but with fellow citizens. We will no longer have to spend collectively trillions of dollars on armies to defend us, but will have a much cheaper and much more effective federal justice system, with federal courts and federal police force to enforce the rule of law even on the strong. And we will write the laws together through some sort of a global parliament or congress, in which no nation or religion will have an automatic majority. We will finally be free to aggregate our political power with other humans who share our values, and there are so many. We will be able to start dealing seriously with our global problems that today no one is responsible for. Yes, I know it's big, but never forget, so are we. The Global Democracy and Justice Lecture Series is also available as videos on YouTube and other platforms. If you found the ideas in this episode interesting, please share it.